Today we're starting week two of the I Am Sermon series, and as we look at these statements that Jesus makes about himself, on the surface they seem like just statements that have imagery and meaning um, that are significant, but when we're willing to take a look at them in a deeper way, they have profound implications for us, uh, for who Jesus says he is, and for his church and how we're called to live and what's fascinating about uh, this I Am series that's rooted in John is we have to remember that John, as he's writing this, is writing in the area of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And you might say, okay, what does that matter? Well, at the time that, Jesus, or that John writes this, 20 to 30% of that region is made up of Jewish believers uh, that have some way of understanding God's word. But the rest of it is in a, in a, a Greco-Roman world that is very opposite of, of following uh, Jesus or God's laws, Torah, any of those types of things. And you can say, okay, well, about 70 years after Jesus dies and resurrects, about 80,000 people become believers. And about 100 years later, the whole region of Asia Minor is pretty much Christian, even before Constantine comes in and legalizes Christianity. And it came at tremendous cost of them living out their life and living out their faith with these statements. It, it cost them something, and yet the whole area at that time had become Christian. So it has huge implications not only for what they read and heard and understood, but also how they lived. It cost them something. Now, I think that all of you guys would agree that Jesus, whether you have made him Lord of your life or not, Jesus was a great teacher. Would you agree with that? Now, I've got Jesus on the top of my list, and then I've got another person that's like number two, and he is definitely number two on the list of great teachers other than Jesus. This is the guy. <laughs> and if you've been a part of real life, you already know this about me. Like I talk about this guy quite a bit. Like this guy is an amazing teacher. And you've got this amazing scene, right, where Daniel's son has been learning defense and finally, he's learning offense. He's learning how to punch, right? We've got this next scene where he's uh, healing Daniel at the end of the tournament, right? Like, you never forget this scene, right? Here we go. Everybody, yep, exactly, absolutely. Well, I just need you to know, as a kid, I was all in. I was all in growing up. <laughs> That's a good crane kick form right there, right? I was all in. And what we're going to find out today as we go through this sermon series, that Jesus is brilliant. He's brilliant. He's the greatest teacher. It's almost like he's like God or something. Um, but we're going to be in John chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you what's going on. John chapter 8 is in the middle of a Jewish festival. And to give you an idea, it's actually John chapter 5, John chapter 6, John chapter 7, John chapter 10. Uh, all through there, there's these festivals that are taking place, um, which I didn't even get to talk about this last week. There's so much to talk about. But even in Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, is happening during Passover. We didn't even get to talk about that last week. We didn't even get to that. Okay? 
But we've got these Jewish festivals that are taking place. And today we talk about how Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And it's happening during the Feast of Tabernacles. I just want you to listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 8. And I want you to kind of understand something about Jesus. This is how cool of a teacher he is. He's smart. Great teachers are teaching you even when you don't even realize they're teaching you, right? You ever had someone like that in your life? They were teaching you and you didn't even know they were teaching you? Well, Jesus decides to stay in Galilee. And he decides to stay in Galilee and he sends all of his family to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And then halfway through the feast, he decides to then go to Jerusalem. He decides to go and be a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he goes into the temple and he begins to have a conversation about who he is. And this is what he says. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge... My decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written, the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. And he does it during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Why does that even matter? What does, what does that matter? Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, was a, a festival that really was a pilgrimage that all the Jews went back to Jerusalem. And when they went back to Jerusalem, they were remembering something. They were remembering the time that they were actually wandering in the desert and they were actually living in temporary shelters, tents, uh, booths, tabernacles, that type of thing. And so even to this day, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they set up temporary structures like this picture. I want you to take a look at these temporary structures where they actually live in for seven days. And they celebrate together as a family. And so for all of you guys that are all about the tent camping, you're, you're all about this, right? Like temporary shelter. Yeah, let's do it. For those of you guys that are like not into tent camping, you would hate this, right? It's like, why? My, my house, my family's house is right there. Why can't we go back in the house? Why can't we go in there, right? Um, the outdoorsy people are all about it. The indoorsy people are like, no, not doing it, right? And this is what they would do for seven days to remember what their ancestors went through to remember God's faithfulness to them in the desert in the midst of not having their, their final home, the promised land. They didn't have their final home marked. And so in Leviticus, it says this, Leviticus chapter 23, for seven days you must live outside in little shelters. You'll become outdoorsy people. It doesn't say that, but... All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I, am the, I made their ancestors live in shelters. When I rescued them from the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So this is, this is the scene as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. What's going on in Jerusalem? 
Do you notice where Jesus says, I am the light of the world? Do you notice where it was at? Verse 20. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Why does John put that there? It's kind of interesting detail. Like, well, he was here when he said it. Here's some pictures of the temple, some mock-ups of what it would have looked like. And you'll notice this amazing temple structure, and you'll notice the, the women's court. And this is also known as the temple courts. Why is it called the women's court, the temple's court? Because if you look at this 3D view, you'll notice that in the women's court, in the temple court, all men and women could gather there. But as you move forward in the temple, only men could move forward throughout the temple. So this is where we also have where Jesus talks about the widow's might, how the woman came and gave all that she had into the offering. Where? Where they collect the treasury, which is what John talks about, where the offerings were put. Okay? Well, what does that matter? Here's where it gets really, really cool, okay? So not only do they set up these booths and these tabernacles for them to live in for seven days, but they also do something to remember, to remember, to never forget what God has done for us. That God was with us in the midst of the desert, that he walked with us and he provided for us. We get the story in Exodus chapter 13 when Pharaoh finally let the people go. Remember 10 commandments? Let my people go, right? Remember that? It's coming up, Charlton Heston. Watch it. ABC, I think, is what it's on. Anyway, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. And he said, God will certainly come to help you. And when he does, you must, not, you must take my bones with you from this place. The Israelites left, sucketh, and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Okay, here's the passage you want to underline, highlight, verse 21, verse 22. The Lord went ahead of them, and he guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided what? What? Light at the night, at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night, and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. Feast of Tabernacles is a festival reminding them that God was with them in the midst of traveling in, in temporary home, and He provided light for them. So, what do the Jews do? This is what I love about the Jewish people. What do they do to remember this? They do something. This is what they do. In the temple courts, four great menorahs. Anybody know what menorah is? Hanukkah, candle. Are you with me? 75 feet high, placed in the women's court in remembrance of the miraculous unending supply of oil on Hanukkah, were also lit on Sukkot, tabernacles. 75 feet high. Basketball players? Anybody? That's seven, 10 feet, right? Seven. 
feet high, huge menorahs, 10 gallons of oil, some serious oil, right? The wicks were made from the worn out breeches of the priests. The light of the candles could be seen in every house in Jerusalem. Tradition records that the people, upon seeing the light, saying these words, our ancestors turned their backs on the temple of the Lord, but our eyes are on the Lord. Truly the feast of Sukkot was one of great celebration. A rabbi once said, whoever has not seen Sukkot has not witnessed real joy. In the context of a joyous feast ended each day with the blazing candles in the temple courts, Jesus said, in this place, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that provided for you in the wilderness, the pillar of light. I'm that one. I'm that person. Right now, you're going, whoa. He's like Miyagi, but even better, right? He's teaching something amazing, and he's sitting there going, guys, this whole thing, it's about me. It's always been about me. Here's what's cool. I did, dug up some archaeological work. I was able to find a picture of John's reaction of the whole candles in the temple. This is what it looked like. This is what he looked like. This is a picture of him. <laughs> I'm so proud of myself for that picture. <laughs> when I was preparing this week, I thought about how bright it was. And I was like, it was like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation House. That's what it was like. It's like that. That's what the temple looked like. Right? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Jesus is always intentional. Jesus is always strategic, and he's always helping the people understand it's about me. All of these festivals, all of these things, it's been pointing to me. All of the Old Testament, it's been pointing to me. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that's the light of the world. And if you knew my father... You would know me. We don't have a lot of time today. But there's so much. I, I went to Jenny on Thursday. And I said, if you don't know Jenny, she's our children's pastor. And I go, this is one of those sermons I could preach for an hour. And she's like, don't do that. I have children in the rooms. <laughs> They will burn the building down. I go, I won't preach for now. <laughs> I don't have time to get into all of it, but that's just the Jewish world that Jesus enters into and says, I'm the light of the world. But we also know that John is writing in Asia Minor, Asia, Asia Minor in Turkey, which is predominantly non-believing Jews. And so they worship Greco-Roman gods. I'm just barely going to mention this. But you've got Zeus. You've heard of Zeus, right? Zeus is the chief gods and has many children. Leto is the mistress of Zeus who has twins, Artemis and Apollo. Everybody say Apollo. By the 3rd century BC, Apollo became known as the god of light and the god of oracle. So who are you going to choose? Jesus or Apollo? 
And for the Greco-Roman world, if you choose Jesus, there's consequences. You're probably going to be at least threatened, if not executed, because we can't disrupt the Roman gods. Because if the Roman gods get angry, our life becomes miserable. There's only one God, and it's Jesus. Are you going to trust him, believe in him, even when there's significant consequence? Okay, Jesus is the light of the world. How does that impact? How does that impact us? How does it impact you? How does that impact me? Well, here's the thing. Look at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the thing. When you choose to follow Jesus, he takes away all the darkness. He either takes the way or he invites you to actually choose and trust his word so that you would not walk in the ways of the world, that you would walk and follow his ways, his truth. And so the reality is for all of us as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we then become people that then go and follow Jesus who is the person of light, who receives light from Jesus, the word in flesh, to actually be sent on mission to be a light into a very, very dark world. If we claim to be a follower of the way of the truth and the life, we, we claim to be a follower of the person that says, I am the light of the world, we then mirror to the world what light looks like. That's the commissioning that Jesus has been giving to his disciples and God's been giving to his people from the very, very beginning. See, the Jews had gotten caught up in believing that, that it was just about them and God's like, no, it's not about you. I've set you apart so that you would be a light to the world. Isaiah says this, uh, chapter 42, verse six. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people. And uh, what's it say up there? And uh, for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And there's, I don't have time to talk about it, but I want to talk about it. Go and look what John the Baptist has to say to Jesus in the midst of being in prison and that whole conversation. John the Baptist wants to be a light to the Gentiles and he thinks he's getting out of prison and he's not. But we're called to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Too small. I've got a greater task for you, Isaiah says. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation might, may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine for your... Your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. From the very beginning, God has been trying to redeem the world back to himself. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. His people are called to be a light to the world. So when Jesus says, I am the one that you've been waiting for, I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Not only in your own life, 
but you're called to be a light to the people. You're called to be a light to your neighbor. So how you live shows either light or darkness. And it shows whether that's who your God is like or is not like. So how do you live? How do you live when it comes to the mission of Jesus? How are you doing when it comes to reaching others and showing others what God's like? How good are you at that? So, we had an awesome, like, I guess you call it a small group, men's small group on Wednesday night. A bunch of us guys got together, hung out, and just lived life together. And there was a conversation that got brought up. And it was one of those things where, like, man, this keeps, like, getting brought up in multiple environments. There's this statement that people are saying in our church. And by the way, I got permission from the person to talk about this story. But they said something, and it started a deeper conversation. They said something, and I was like, you know what? I'm diving into this. I want to dive into this. Because we've heard from other leaders, other staff, this kind of same comment. And this was the comment. We asked, like, how did you hear about real life? How long have you been coming? And we asked this question, what is it you appreciate about this church? And here's the answer that keeps popping up over the last three, four, five, six months. I just really like real life because it's small. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that answer. There's nothing wrong with liking that answer or having that as your answer. Let me ask you this question, though, and I asked this person this question. What happens when it quits being small? He kind of thought a little bit. And he goes, I, I, I guess the way to put it is we notice when we come to real life that people see us, that people hear us, that people come up to us and ask us, like, how we're doing, and they notice us. And I said, that's good. Who doesn't want a church that does that? I want a church that does that. Anybody else? That when I come through the doors, people go, I see you. I notice you. How are you? And it's not the, hey, how are you? I'm good. Well, I'm glad you're good. Have a good day. It's not that. But no, there's people that look at you and go, are you really okay? Are you really okay? Are you sure? And then if you're not, you can say, I'm not okay. Or if you're having a great week. No, I'm having a great week. This is what the Lord did. And as I was having this conversation with them, I said, I want that in our church. We need to have that in our church. Whether we're a church of 50 or 500. Would you agree with that? Like, that, that's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be a light. That, that's what it means to love well. Jesus said that the world will know that you're mine by how you love one another. The, the world will know that you are mine by always having right theology. Is that, what he, is that what he said? No. That you would love each other well. And then I just asked him this question. I said, do you think that that can take place, whether there's a church of 50 or 500? 
And he goes, I think, yeah, I think so. I go, I know so. But here's what it determines. Here's what has to happen. If we're going to continue to be the light to the nations, here's what it requires. It requires not just five people to carry the mission of being a light to the world. It doesn't just take five people. It doesn't take just 10 people. It's going to have to take 30 people and 50 people and 100 people or more. Because the culture of relationship and the culture of love is not bound by a size. It's bound by a people and their hearts. Are you with me this morning, church? So when you come here and we ask you, can you scoot in? There's not very many chairs. Do we respond with, Or do we respond with, shoot, have my chair. When we come in and the lobby's full, do we go, oh, it's full. Or do we go, who are all these people? And I want to know them. And I want to I know, are they okay? Joe's joking about the construction out there. That started two weeks ago. And I asked him, I said, hey, how long is this going to be? Oh, probably a good four to five months. Seriously? Right? We're praying for the largest Easter in the history of our church. What if it was the largest history, largest Easter in the history of our church and we had to walk three blocks to get here? We need the exercise, yeah. Would we do it? I think you would. The culture of this church that's built on loving God and loving others, that doesn't stop. Does it get more difficult as the church grows? 100%. But it's not insurmountable because you know what, you guys? I've been a, I've been a part of movements where the Lord moved in an amazing way it doesn't matter whether the church is 50 or 5,000. Walking into an environment where people go, I've never met you before. How'd you hear about this church? How can I, how can I connect with you? How, are you? Are you interested in getting connected to a home group? And it's going to require every single one of us, you guys, because, gosh dang it, man, Treasure Valley is an amazing place to live, and it doesn't touch compared to knowing Jesus, you guys. More and more people, I, I've got everything. I hear this, I've got everything, and I'm still empty. Let me tell you about Jesus. But it's gonna take all of us in this room if we wanna reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. What do we gotta do? This is what we gotta do. We can't stop what I'm about ready to share with you. It gets, John, John gets even better with Jesus. Look at this, Psalm 119. How do we reach the world? We're gonna to have to be people of his mission, but we're also gonna to have to be this. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and uh, we're gonna to have to be connected to this thing. Jesus's words. The moment that we get disconnected from him and his words, 
It's not going to work. It falls apart. And even in the midst of our hardest times, we go, God, help me understand. You've been hurt by the church? Help me understand. People are supposed to be people of light. How could they treat me like this? You got to stay connected to his word if you're going to go through the desert. You got to be connected to his word. And here's where it gets even better. John chapter 1. Are you ready? John chapter 1. People of his word. In the beginning was the... And the word was with God and the... Was God. He was, the, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the... Light! It's better of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to testify and witness concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children of light. I added that. Verse 13. Children born not of natural uh, descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Here's verse 14. Here it comes. You ready? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You know what that original word is? Tabernacled. Boom. God tabernacled with us. God came and dwelled in a temporary place as a human and then went back to heaven. As the light of the world, the word became flesh. If we're gonna be a people that live as light to the world, we have to be connected to his word. We have to be connected to the source. Have you ever walked around in the middle of the night without your cell phone light? Have you ever done that? Doesn't work, does it? You stub the toe, and then you say things you shouldn't say, right? It's never good. What lights our path? His word. His word. And so we have to be people that are connected to his word. And here's the thing. I've got a friend of mine who hangs out. A friend of mine who's a pastor who has a mentor of his who hangs out with Jewish rabbis quite often. And they have conversation about Jesus. Conversation about whether he's the son of God. Question about whether he's the Messiah. And do you know what the rabbis say? They say, yeah, like there's some things about Jesus that like, really? Like he's the Messiah? Like that's not the one that we were expecting. But they, they admit he's a great teacher. They, they admit profound teacher, smart teacher. But they say this. Do you know why we have a hard time with Jesus being Messiah? Because if Jesus is the Messiah, then why don't his people approach his word with tenacity? Why don't his people live as light? Why are his people so passive with his words? If I was a follower of Jesus... We would read the Gospels every single week because it's God's Word. 
How could those people be the Messiah's people? Gets you to think, doesn't it? That God, the light of the world, came and tabernacled with us. He became flesh. And he said, if you walk with me, you'll never be in darkness. You'll always be in light. Why would we not every single day say, Lord, light my path. Give me the wisdom. Be thou my vision every day. Because what's at stake? What's at stake is, does the world know Jesus? Does the world know Jesus through me? And through his word. As we wrap up today, I've just got a couple questions for you to wrestle with. How driven am I to know Jesus' words? How driven are you to know Jesus' words? If his words are life, his words are light, how driven are you to know his words? How driven are you to understand Jesus' words? And guess what? The Bible is hard. Do you know that? Do you know the Bible's hard? It's hard. You read that and you go, what in the world does that mean? And here's what's so easy to do. I'm talking to myself here. Things get hard. Brain starts to hurt. I'm going to go do trivial things. And I'm going to keep doing trivial things. And trivial things. Over and over and over again. Candy crush over and over and over and over again. What? Wordle over and over and over again. What? I'm not saying you can't do those things. Like, those are fun, right? Fortnite? That's fun. Jesus has spoken to you, and he wants to keep speaking to you. Those things are fun, but what dominates your time? And here's the cool thing. Your iPhone tells you what dominates your time. Like it does? Yeah, you might, ugh, might see and go, whoa, four hours a, a day on social media? We've got work to do, you guys. Jesus' church has got work to do. And he wants to use you to change the world. There is no plan B. It's you. So are you going to dive in? Are you going to dive in? How driven am I to reach the world around me? Am I willing to give up my seat? Am I willing to walk three blocks? Am I willing to walk across the room and ask, how are you doing? Who are you? Where are you from? Are you willing to love your neighbor like your legit neighbor? One with the annoying dog. Are you willing to love them? And if Jesus is the light of the world, are you clinging to him? Because here's the thing. We can't do it without him. We can't do it without him, and we can't do it without each other. We need each other. Even if you've been hurt in church, we hurt in relationship, but we also heal in relationship. We need each other. As we get ready for communion, I just want to invite you to pray and pray about uh, two things. First one, what does it look like for you to trust Jesus more? And as you're thinking about that, uh, 
We've got Jane and Joe. If you just want to raise your hand, if you didn't get communion as you came in this morning and want communion, just raise your hand and we'll be sure to pass it to you. But where are you at in clinging to Jesus? And maybe that means saying no to something else. Maybe that means turning over, repenting. That's what the Bible calls it, and turning towards the truth. There's something you've got to let go, something you've got to trust. And if that's the case for you this morning, talk to Jesus about that. Anybody else need communion? Let me be afraid to raise your hand. Okay. The second thing is this. Who is Jesus putting in front of you and telling you to go love? Who is Jesus putting in front of you and telling you, go be light? Go love them. Go show them what I'm like. Who is that person that is far from Jesus? Who is that person that's hurting? I want to invite you just to pray for them. Pray for you. Pray for them this morning. Let's get ready for the table.